If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of Isaiah. We're going through the what we would call the Messianic, the Christmas prophecies in the book of Isaiah. And this week we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9, looking at verses 6 and 7. Looked last week in chapter 7, this week in chapter 9, next week I think in chapter 11. It should be on the screen behind me if you aren't able to find it in time. But we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 this morning. It says this. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We are uh, about a month out, theoretically, hopefully, uh, from the birth of my son. My wife is due January 16th, and everything seems to be on track. We don't have any reason to expect a large variation from that date. So we're like, we're really staring down the barrel here. We're right up against it. It's crunch time. But I've been struck in the last few weeks how ordinary it all kind of seems to me. How it feels like my life is going on just like normal, like I'm not this close to having a whole other human in my house. I mean, this is really only kid number two. When JC was born uh, a month out, man, I was on high alert. I was like a deer in the woods, listening, looking, afraid. I was, my spider senses were tingling at every moment. I knew exactly where to go to get to the hospital. Every time we left the house, I would think, okay, if we go into labor here, this is the way I need to go to the hospital. I need to make sure I've got this bag with me at this time and this place. Everything was coming into place. It was like all of my life was focused around this one thing. It was my all-consuming reality, and I was skittish because of it. But this time, not so much. Uh, I mean, if he came tomorrow, I'm sure all of that would kick in real quick. But it's not like my whole life is focused on this every second of every day leading up to it. I'm always consumed by it. It feels like everything's just kind of normal, and then we're going to come home one day, and there's going to be another human there. Up till now, I mean, we haven't even gotten the house ready. If he were born tomorrow, there wouldn't be a room for him to come home to. We've evidently decided that junk is a better thing to put in that space than a crib. Space for a child. I know we've had other stuff going on. I know my to-do list has gotten seemingly larger and larger. It's like I get, knock one off and two more things take its place. But still, I, I would think that I would have a little bit more emphasis, a little more focus coming into this. I mean, God has given us the gift of this boy, this son. We know it's a miracle. We're thankful for him. We are looking forward to to meeting him. I'm sure on the drive to the hospital, I'm not going to be in any way thinking, I wish I were more excited about this. I'm going to be wired. I'm going to be focused. But it sometimes feels like I specifically, I don't think Destiny really experiences this so much, but it feels like I should have been more focused on this than I should have been. But I can tell you, if God said these things about my son, I think I would have a little more focus on what's about to happen. If God had said this kind of stuff about him, 
I don't think I'd have a nonchalant attitude toward his impending birth. I mean, there is a vast difference between me saying, I don't know, let's call him Peter Scott Miller, and God saying, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's one of those that has just a little more oomph to it, a little more meaning behind it, a little more focus to it. In today's verses, Isaiah continues to reveal who this coming Messiah is, who he will be. He tells us more about this child who is going to be born, the one in whom we find the hopes and fears of all the years. And from Isaiah's words about this given son, we're going to see four traits of the coming Messiah this morning. Four traits of the coming Messiah is what we're going to see in today's passage. The first trait of the coming Messiah that we can see in this text is that the coming Messiah, the one that Isaiah is talking about, he is the steadfast foundation. He is the steadfast foundation. Look back at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This Messiah, this one that Isaiah is talking about here, is the same child that we talked about last week, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who is born of the virgin. Isaiah here, just two chapters later, is still on the same theme. He's still telling the people of the miraculous child who is to come. And we saw last week that when he comes, he's going to come to enact God's own plan. He's going to bring with him God's own life. He's going to reveal God's own presence among his people. And this week, we begin to see a little more how he'll be doing this. A little more what it looks like for him to be doing these things among God's people. And before we get into anything that he does, anything that he performs, we have to remember that he comes to us as a gift. Isaiah doesn't just say that there's a child who's going to be born, and this child's going to be a son. He says this child is born to us, that he's given to us. And gifts, good ones at least, they, they tend to have two basic traits. They're, they're good and they're particular. They're focused on the person that they're given to. I mean, no one wants a bad gift, but even something that would be really good for one person can be something that another person's not really going to like, something they would maybe even hate. The gift for it to be good, it has to be good, but it has to be good for them. Okay, I have both given and received bad gifts on birthdays, Christmases, everything. And let me tell you, it is a real bummer both ways. When you give a bad gift, man, you feel like a failure. You feel like you don't know anything anymore. You feel like you don't really understand the person that you've given the gift to. I mean, it never fails. Every year, I give my wife at least one just terrible gift, just something she has no interest in, and it stinks every time. Maybe it's a physical book that she already has on audio that I didn't know about. One time I gave her a little robot vacuum to go around the house, and I thought, man, she's going to love this. And we turned it on, and it just went into the wall, and into the wall, and into the wall, and into the wall, and it never cleaned anything. It was awful. It was too cheap to be of any use to her. And the worst part about it is every time I give her one of those gifts, I'm thinking in my head, like, man, she's going to love this. 
This is the one that she's going to be just head over heels about. She's going to just rave about for months. And she's going to say, man, I'm so glad you got me this thing. And then we turn on the robot vacuum and it just hits the wall. And now there's a little dent and it just gets deeper and deeper every time it does it. And and the thought that has to go through uh, my head whenever that happens is like, man, I spent X dollars and I bought you something. And it was so bad that you would rather I just didn't. Man, that's brutal. But when you're on the receiving end of the gift that's bad, it's no fun for you either. I mean, you love whoever gave it to you. You try your best to be enthusiastic. You don't want to be ungrateful. But there's really only so much excitement you can have for an ugly sweater. Mmm, mustard. I don't have anything in this color. Because why would I? It stinks. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. And you have the inverse of all those same thoughts. You think, do they know me at all? Why did they get me this thing? They could have bought anything in the whole world, and they chose this. In order for a gift to be good, it has to be good, and it has to be good for that person. The good news about this gift that is given to us, this child who is to be born, this son, is that he's given to us by God, and God doesn't give bad gifts. He doesn't have the kind of streak that I have going. He doesn't buy the wrong size. He doesn't feel the wrong need. He knows exactly what his people need. He doesn't miss. And of all the things that he could have given to enact his plans, of all the things he could have done to redeem his people, his plan, what he did, the gift that he gave was this child, this son. He gave us Jesus Christ, whose birth we're celebrating in this season. What he's done is he's given us a good and perfect gift. And this gift is so good and so perfect because he is the one who's going to be able to uphold the whole government. For the government to be on his shoulder, that means that all authority, all power, all rule has been given over to him. There's nothing that's been held back. There's nothing that he doesn't have control over. The government, all that rule, all of that power to reign, it has come down to rest on his shoulders. And he can stand that weight. He can stand that responsibility because he's the creator of all things to begin with. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4 says this. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus, this son, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the government, the authority, that's on his shoulders as well. On him is built all things, and in him all things hold together. And inherent to this promise that the one who is to come, on him the government will rest on his shoulders. Inherent to that promise is that he can handle it. That he can take it. This promised Messiah who is a gift, he can take the whole government upon his shoulders. So the people should be able to place all of their hopes in him. They should be able to build all of their lives on him. 
they can trust that all things are going to work out in him. There is no government, there is no authority that is not subject to him. So with him as the steadfast foundation for all things, his people can trust. They can have faith in this promised Messiah. But, but really, the reason you can believe and trust in him in this way is because he is the shining example. It's because of who he is. That's the second trait of the coming Messiah in these verses. He is the shining example. Look at the rest of verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We looked at these four names in detail last year for our Advent series, one sermon per title, and I'll briefly explain each of the uh, importance of each of these here. But I think the reason they're rattled off here, kind of all in one verse, all at once, without any real explanation in between, is because whenever you add them all together into one person, into this Messiah, into this Son who is to be given, then you're going to get to see Him as the one who is maximally great. You're going to be able to see Him as He truly is, the one who is absolutely superlative in every aspect. He's a shining example of perfection. Because he has each of these attributes, and he has each of them to their fullest extent. He is a wonderful counselor. So, so his wisdom is enough that he can give counsel, that you would want to listen to his counsel, that people would come to him to hear his counsel, and that the counsel he then gives is wonderful counsel. He's the embodiment of wisdom. He's revealing God's wisdom with every word out of his mouth. That's what makes him the wonderful counselor. I mean, we all know people who give advice and probably shouldn't. You hear it and immediately think, that doesn't sound right. Actually, the, the fact that you like this probably tells me that I'm not where I need to be going, that I'm not on the right track. I look at the shirt that you're wearing, and the fact that you like this one makes me think, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't be telling me those things. Jesus, though, he's the opposite of that. He's the one whose wisdom you hear and immediately think, man, I need to remember that. I need more of that. I need to sit underneath that. I need to try to apply that. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. And he's also the mighty God. This coming Messiah, he has all the power of the Creator. There's not an opponent, there's not a problem that he's going to come up against where he's outmatched. He's never the underdog. He's never having to creatively work his way around the obstacle because he can't just take it on in a full frontal assault. This might that he has, it's not just God-like, it's the very might of God. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. I talked more last year about the interesting facets of that phrase because it's being applied to Jesus, the Son, the Messiah. But for our purposes this morning, don't get too distracted by the Father language except to say that He will be the Father of many, of many people, of all those who follow Him as His children. And He's going to continue in His fatherly love toward them for forever. But I think the, the greater emphasis here in this immediate context is that He's everlasting that he's unchanging, that he's unmoving. 
that he's not coming across anything new. He's not having to improvise because he's got a lack of experience here. He has always been. He will always be. And I haven't been shy this morning or throughout this series so far to just directly call this coming Messiah, the one that Isaiah is talking about, Jesus. Just say straight up, he's talking about Jesus. He's saying that he is God in the flesh who has come to save his people from their sins. Okay, that's not changing here. And I really think of all the other obvious evidence, this title is part of why it's so clear that that's how we should understand these prophecies, that they are talking about Jesus. Whenever you read a commentary on these kind of passages, whenever you hear someone smarter than me talk about some of these things, sometimes they'll talk about some of the more literal, immediate fulfillments. Talk about Isaiah having a son to fulfill these prophecies. And that that may work as an immediate, a lesser fulfillment. I'm not going to completely deny that whenever you read Isaiah, whenever you read a commentary on Isaiah, and it talks about specific kings who are fulfilling these prophecies, that I'm not going to say that they're wrong. I think they are right in some sense, in a lesser sense. But in no way is the son of Isaiah, in no way is the son of any other king, the everlasting father. In no way is that true. That other son, he may be a child who is born. He may be a son who is given. He may even reign as if the government rests on his shoulders. He may have wisdom. He may have power that's greater than what you would expect from a mere mortal. But once you get to everlasting father, then there's just no way that we're talking about anyone but Jesus here, anyone but God here. This one absolutely requires God to be the one that is being talked about here and God coming as a son who is given a child who is born. Jesus is the only one who meets that criteria. This one requires someone eternal. This one needs one who not only always was, but always will be, everlasting father. And that's just for the everlasting bit. He's the everlasting father, so he has to be one with the father. As the Nicene Creed would say, very God of very God. He has to be so closely identified with the father that it's not incorrect for him to say, as he does in the Gospels, I and the father are one. We don't have time this morning for me to walk you through the finer points of what we understand regarding the Trinity, but I want you to see the heft, the the, the weight that's carried by this title specifically, that's given to the coming Messiah, that he is the everlasting Father. He has always been, and he is the Prince of Peace. When he comes to rule and reign with the government on his shoulders, he brings with him, through his own presence, through his own wisdom and power. He brings his own peace as well. I'll get a little bit more into the implications of this idea in a minute, but remember what I said last week was the context into which Isaiah is giving these prophecies. The king had just died. He was a good king. They had had a pretty good time, but now there's a lot of uncertainty. They know things are about to take a turn. He did a good job, but his son isn't looking so great. They hear murmurings about Assyria, Egypt. They know those are names to fear. And into that time of confusion, into that time of dread, God, through Isaiah, is promising one who will come and will bring with him peace. Comfort and joy, you might say. 
The coming Messiah that Isaiah is talking about, he's a shining example. He's the greatest of the greats. He's better than you could hope or dream any king could possibly be. He has enough wisdom that you can call him the wonderful counselor. He has enough power that you can see him to be the mighty God. He has enough experience, enough longevity and fatherly love that you trust him as the everlasting father. And he pursues, he finds peace as the prince of peace. I mean, he's got it all. I am not someone who thinks that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. I was born in the early 90s. Uh, it has to be Michael Jordan. That's, if you're born in that period, that's the answer. You lose your millennial card if you say anything other than Michael Jordan to that question. But the reason it's a conversation as to who's the greatest basketball player of all time, the reason people don't just automatically default to Michael is because LeBron can play all five spots on the floor. He's built like a power forward. But for a lot of his career, he played like a slashing shooting guard or a point guard, a shooter. I mean, he has the best of all the attributes that you would want in a great player. He's a great passer. He's a great rebounder. He's a great shooter. He's a great defender. He's a great leader. And if you had any one of these things, any one of these attributes, if you had them good enough, people would say you're great. You're Hall of Fame level. You're one of the best. But once you start adding all of these things together, that's where you come up with someone that you start running out of ways to talk about. You're running out of ways to describe how good this person actually is. The coming Messiah here, he can do it all. He's a shining example of everything you would hope that a king would possibly be. His wisdom, his power, his endurance, his results, they're undeniable. Any one of these things would make him a great king, a fantastic king, a better king than they had seen yet. But to add them all together, that makes him the greatest of all time. That means he could succeed in any era. That's the king that Isaiah is describing. And the effects of having a king like that really only begin with peace. They're founded on peace, but they continue. They expand beyond peace. And that brings us to the third trait of the coming Messiah. The Messiah is the prosperous king. That's the third trait of the coming Messiah in our verses today. The Messiah is the prosperous king. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Because he is all the things we saw in the last verse, he has this kind of effect on the government that he oversees. He has this kind of effect on his kingdom. The verse says that two things of his will never end, that peace will never end. We'll talk more about that in a second. But also the increase of his government will never end. So pay close attention there because it doesn't just say that his government will never end, that his government will have no end, that it will continue forever. Because, I mean, that would sound pretty good, right? If you're a king, I think you hear that and think, good, that's as good as it gets. My government's never going to end. It's always going to be there. It's always going to exist. That's a pretty good deal. That's the best I could hope for. But that's not what it says. It says that of the increase of his government, there will be no end. 
So not only will it continue forever, but it will continue forever, always increasing, always getting better and better, higher and higher. It is only continuing in levels of prosperity for forever. You can't top that. It's compounding interest. It's exponential growth on exponential growth. It's finding the limit as X approaches infinity. The graph can't hold it. It doesn't have a top that's high enough for it. The numbers, they don't make any sense anymore. You're running out of zeros to put at the end. There's not enough space on the page to contain the number of what it is. It's the LA Dodgers payroll. It's the Energizer battery. It just keeps going and going higher and higher for forever. That's the kind of prosperity that this coming Messiah is going to usher in, Isaiah is saying. When I was in college, there was this guy who I had a lot of mutual friends with, but I didn't really know very well. He was a uh, business major. And one of the only things I knew about him, evidently one of the only things anybody ever always knew about him, was that his dream was to be the CEO of the Coca-Cola company. Every time his name came up, whether he was there or not, someone would say, you know, that guy wants to be the CEO of the Coca-Cola company. That was what he was known for. It evidently was how he introduced himself. Hi, I'm Nathan Miller. My dream is to be the CEO of Coca-Cola one day. That's what everybody always knew. And let me tell you, I can't think of a job that I would want less than to be the CEO of the Coca-Cola company. I always wondered why he wanted that job so bad, because it just sounds awful to me. I mean, if you're the CEO of Coke, what do you even do? You're in every country, man. Anytime you change the flavor, you just make it worse. Everyone has already tried your product. Everyone already knows what they think about it. They either have a room in their house that is full of Coke memorabilia, or they prefer Dr. Pepper. Those are the two options. What's your plan if you're the CEO of Coke? There's no higher ceiling to reach. The reign of Coke as the number one cola may last for forever, but the increase won't. You're probably already there. It can't. There is a mathematical limit to the number of Cokes humans are capable of consuming in a given period of time. But the coming Messiah, his kingdom, it doesn't have that same problem. The increase of his government, it's continually building prosperity. That is never going to end. And with that prosperity, which will never end, also will never end its peace. This government, as it increases, it won't be perpetually at war for new land, for new territory. There's not going to be bloody battle after bloody battle, followed by weeping because there are no more worlds left to conquer. Even as it increases, its peace is going to increase as well. The Messiah is not coming to preside over endless conflicts, endless wars, and pain. He's coming to preside over ever-increasing prosperity, over ever-increasing peace. And you know the other reason being the CEO of Coca-Cola sounds so terrible? It's not just that you can't really build anything new. It's not just that you can't build anything different. It's that, man, there's there's only one way to go. You're at the peak. You're only going to make it worse. It only ever goes down. 
It's not that it can get higher. It can't get higher. But it can certainly get lower. So your whole life, you're just staring at a graph. You're just hoping the red line never dips, never goes down. And in the meantime, you're so afraid. You're so, uh, so wrapped up in this identity of being Coke. You're afraid of that happening so much that you're making everyone else in your company's lives miserable because you just have to sell more soda. That sounds awful. But the coming Messiah, his reign, his prosperity, his peak never gets reached. And even with that, it doesn't come a frenzy to maintain it. It comes with a peace that it always is, that it always will be. He's the prosperous king. And that leads us to the final trait of the coming Messiah in today's verses, which is really the, the culmination, the effect of the other traits. The coming Messiah is the perfect ruler. He's the perfect ruler. Look back at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's on the throne of David. He's over David's kingdom. But he's the true and better David. He's over the true and better kingdom. And their heads hearing these words, they would have thought that David is about as good as it gets for a king. He was the pinnacle in most of their eyes. He was the one who ruled over prosperity and in power and righteousness. Minus a few glaring counterexamples. But the Messiah is better where David was already good. And he has none of the same defects that David had. So by reminding them of David's rule, Isaiah is calling them back to all the things that were good. And he's even showing them that this is going to be better than what they've had. Better than what they've already seen. And he's connecting it with what has been before. Because to sit on David's throne, to rule over David's kingdom, means that this isn't a foreign king who's coming in to rule over the people. This isn't a foreign king who's going to come in and rule them, to take them over from the outside. This is one who's going to spring up from among them to make them the best version of what they were always supposed to be. This one is a better king, and he will make these same people into a better people. When he establishes his kingdom among them, he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this new kingdom, even as it ever increases, they won't have to worry about injustice here. They won't have to worry that the king will see all these things for himself, that the ruling class will see all these things for themselves, that they're going to be built on the backs of the common man, that the lower classes, they won't get to experience any of these benefits. No, here in this kingdom, there will finally be justice. There will be order. There will be righteousness here. Each one not only receiving as they should, but each one doing as they should. In this new rule and reign, this new system, which features justice and righteousness, overseen by the prosperous king, this perfect ruler, it's going to be upheld in that same fashion forever. It won't, dwind it won't dwindle. It won't wane. It won't decay over time. It won't erode under the slow dripping of minuscule flaws that eventually come to the foreground. 
It is going to be the pinnacle of what it is, increasing in a government that is already just and righteous for forever. And to wrap all this up, he says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That the focus, the power, the passion and might of God himself, working through God himself, the Messiah, sent to the earth as this Messiah, Jesus Christ the righteous, that he will do this. He's the steadfast foundation on which all of this is going to be built. He can take it. He can uphold it. The house is good from the foundation up. He's the shining example of everything that a ruler is already supposed to be and more. He's wise in counsel. He's great in power. He's endless in love and fervent in peace. He's the prosperous king who's going to oversee an ever-increasing prosperity and peace. That's all powered by his own might, by his own power. And all of this together makes him the perfect ruler. He will love and lead his people, the same people that he has loved from the beginning, with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The fact that his zeal will do this shows that he's not bored by this idea. He's not tired of this plan. He's not setting all of this in motion so that he can move on to something else. He's not sending a lackey to do this because he simply can't be bothered. Now he himself will do all this through this Messiah who is to come, who is he himself. And he's going to see it through to the end. All these coming traits, all these coming promises now come into the world in the birth of Jesus Christ, the child who was born and the son who was given. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to to gather with your people, to sing, to worship, to hear your word with your people. But more than all those things, we thank you for the gift of this son who was given, this child who was born. Thank you for setting the government on his shoulders, for setting all things on his shoulders, for him being the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. We're thankful that we have a part to play, a little space in the throne and kingdom of David on which he reigns. And we look forward to the day when when all of this is made sight, when we experience it in its fullness, when the increase of this government and of peace will have no end. Help us in the meantime. Love us in the meantime. Remind us of your goodness and grace. Save us from our sins through this Messiah so that we can partake of this kingdom, so that we can see your zeal made forth, so that we can love you and serve you today, every day, and for forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.